Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Thank you for tuning in to another episode in our Win Pro Nats series. This is part D of five parts. There will be one more episode in this series, part E. In today's episode, we're going to be covering how do you develop training. You might think of this as the actionable component of what we're trying to do in developing towards our goal of winning the Pro National Road Race. In the final episode, part E, which is forthcoming the following week, we will be talking about what do you do after you've reached that point in May where you can execute that concept that's represented by that three-week training period. What do you do between that point, the point of the race, and how would you approach the race itself both in terms of what do you try to do when it comes to applying your fitness and what about the other kinds of externalities, which although they are externalities are still very much significant and very influential in terms of your ability to achieve your goals in a race environment. However, we can't get to that point at all if we don't first develop the fitness that's necessary to be able to be engaged at that level of competitive performance. So today, how do we develop training? If you're wondering in general in the pod, what are some specific ways that I could put the concepts that are discussed in so many of these episodes into practice, then this episode is for you. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We're also available for consultation. Send us a message, let us know what your training problem or question or challenge is, and we can engage with you and try to help you take steps towards where you want to be. You can also just let us know what you're enjoying on the podcast. If you're enjoying it, take a moment, share with somebody else who you think would be interested. Thanks for making time to listen to the pod today. Let's get into today's episode. In this episode, we want to talk more about some samples of training sessions that could be used to develop your fitness. One of the more frustrating things about training ideas that I find, and maybe this is influenced by my thirst for explanations, is that it's really hard to bridge between the ideas and your own practice. And I think complexities of this have to do not just with trying to understand a training plan, but it's that pedagogical space of communication between the ideas that we're trying to represent with the things that we write down on paper, on a shared document, in Training Peaks. If you're a Training Peaks user, I personally am not really a Training Peaks user. I don't really feel that those features are necessary, and I think sometimes it can make things more difficult to understand. Training should not be a cult of mysteries. It should be something that people can access and make sense of easily, and that's the goal and the responsibility and the value of the coach is to teach and bring people up to that level of understanding. I very much enjoy that kind of exploratory aspect of training, trying to figure things out, make better sense of what we're trying to do, collecting information, making observations, reassessing and reevaluating. 
that's good if you also enjoy that because that's an essential part of the process and the experience. We need to be able to engage with that. We need to recognize that we're always generating data and information and we need to be able to evaluate it. And that's one of the core challenges of doing this stuff. And I think, therefore, developing those skills and processes that are going to help us make sense of what we're doing and try to interpret what's going on is really important. And then again, an effective, a good coach is somebody who's going to help you with that problem, help you figure out how you can engage with that, resolve that stuff, and be more effective in what you're doing. I also think that we want to recognize that there aren't these tiers of training. You know, I've, you can see stuff where if we think about cycling, which is appropriate for our Win Pro Nats podcast, if we just focus in on the discipline of cycling, if you take the TSS training concept, there's a suggestion that, well, here's the amount of TSS for these different category levels of riders. And that is suggestive of the fact that, well, if I want to be such and such a category of rider, I need to do this TSS. But I don't think that's true. I think it's more of this sort of reflective thing of, well, this seems to be the TSS of this particular pool of people that presumably they're drawing this data from, and that's what it looks like in their model. But then you have to take a step back again and say, how much of that is prescriptive, right, versus how much of this is, this is actually what is literally, quote unquote, necessary. And on that scale of individualization, you can't make those kinds of determinations. The goal is to get as fit as we possibly can. And that's where we're using that concept of that three-week block in May we're trying to talk about in this episode, how would you train up to that? And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's difficult, to say the least, to try to describe the schedule. And there's a long history and tradition to people trying to identify, find, and apply the schedule that will take them from point A to point B in all kinds of endurance sports. And, you know, there have been periods where really taking the schedule and copying it and applying it was sort of like the best practice that you could do as an athlete. But we come back to that issue of interpretation. How are we making sense of what we're looking at? How are we taking what we're understanding and trying to apply it? A concept like lactate threshold should at once be very simple, but becomes very clearly complicated and difficult to decipher. And that's not a reflection of the the ability of individuals the ability of coaches per se. It's just a reflection of the fact that when you go out and you put anything into practice, as simple as it is, it can still be come, right, complicated because the devil is in the details. It's how do we engage with this stuff? How do we try to apply it and interpret it? And so when we are talking through these exemplars, they are, this is pedagogical, that we are using these exemplars as a way to try to add more meaning to this stuff. If I was working with an athlete, you know, I might not necessarily try any of these things with any given individual, really depend on where they are, what they engage well with, what their profile of responsiveness to training starts to look like over time. All of these are things that you have to really consider and weigh, both for yourself, if you're guiding your own process, or with other people, if you're working with them, or if you're just like having a discussion with a buddy about training. Right. And they're trying to, you know, be Socratic with you. Right. And develop that thinking through an exchange or a discussion. You know, you want to really think about, well, how can you really evaluate that? And 
again, the lactate threshold concept, I think, is also illustrative of the difficulty that there is in trying to communicate an idea. And all of this cross-labeling, mislabeling, labeling things that aren't the lactate threshold at all, and everybody being confident that they have this accurate interpretation is something that we really see as chaotic. And, you know, if you want to learn more about the lactate threshold stuff, you can look at our light bulb burst series where we're exploring the lactate threshold in detail from a variety of different perspectives. But a simple crossover that applies to this episode is we need to recognize that the weight of historical perspective, historical memory about training continues to salt our interpretations today. So a lot of the concepts about applying that threshold thing are skewed by the fact that we see lactate as this like limiter to our training. And that bias is there and it influences us to interpret and engage with it and to see it as this resistance that needs to be struggled with versus this idea of, well, this is a source of energy and we need to train with it in a way to maximize our application of it. So when we talk about these exemplar pieces of training, we're also trying to foil into that, you know, integrate that with the, well, how would you really interpret what that means? How do you actually execute it? Because you can take two times 400, a very simple concept, and you could do that in any number of different ways. And that's something with only two work periods And then if you start to get into increasingly elaborate things and then you get into the patterns of training of what are you doing on the scale of weeks and months, right, we start to see more and more. So it's impossible to be comprehensive. I know in this series I had also said at one point that I wanted to make a schedule that would cover through from, um, you know, that post-Labor Day up to into, you know, that point in May and then into June up to the national championship race. And I've decided to steer away from that because I really don't think that you can actually map that out. And I wouldn't want people to necessarily take something on that scale and say, aha, well, I need to apply this schedule. It, you can't really do it in that way. And I think that that leads to a lot of injury problems. And that's where because you get in this situation of you're trying to do things that you maybe aren't ready to do, but you've cultivated the mindset of this is what's absolutely necessary. We're trying to, you know, not waste our time, trying to not waste our energy. We want training to be good and positive and productive. And it's in the interpretation and the understanding. So there might be some, these concepts in here and these exemplars, I think are actually going to be more valuable. And these are things that you could more easily transfer because I think they might be informative in terms of like thinking about what are the things that you do, how can you maybe try out some of these things, and maybe trying it out might be more, let me extend this to revise what I'm doing. And it might not even be changing or rewriting sessions from what they maybe are. It might just be changing how you are approaching them in terms of your level of exertion and your sort of mental engagement with that space of training. So... Bridging ideas to practice. So if we think about a board, picture a board with a series of knobs, and each knob is linked to, tied to a feature of your training. And these are things that you can adjust or change or leverage. 
And I'm going to give four here, but I think that there are more. And I think that depending on the individual, depending on what the individual is trying to do, I think that can also help to determine how many there might be. But I think these are four common levers of training or things that we might toggle and try to dial in on that board. First one would be volume. I think there is a belief that certain volumes of training are somehow going to be productive towards a particular goal. Um, We see that with the TSS leads to blank category example uh, in some cycling training models, but we also see that with the idea that in running of, well, if you can run 100 miles a week, then blank is going to occur. And that's a misnomer because number one, the origin of that story, the Lydiard people, they were running way more than that. Um, They were approaching that in a very different way. And how you're applying that volume is way more significant. I also think the additional issue is, is that you're applying a training stimulus based on what is respo- you can be responsive to, okay? So I don't want to wade out of my depth here, but in a sense we can say, well, where do all of these traits expression come from? Um, and I think we can say in a simple sense that we're looking at like a DNA-based thing and that, you know, one of the adaptations the body has is it's going to express certain traits um, based on the environment that it feels that it's in. And so volume is really a a knob that we're dialing because it's changing that environment. And we need to make sure the environment is something that's going to cause our body to express adaptations in the way that we want. And if I'm remembering my vocabulary correctly, um, and I apologize if I uh, misrepresent this to anybody who's more knowledgeable in this particular domain, but epigenetics, I think, is kind of what we're talking about here. And I hear Indigo San Milan reference that. And I'm pretty sure epigenetics is referring to the notion of, well, you sort of look at how the environment you're in changes the way your genes are expressing themselves. And I'm sure there's more to it than just that simple definition. I mean, we're talking about a complex process. And I'm sure it's a field that is evolving in its study. But in that sense, volume is something that impacts this. And volume is a result of a combination of, could be, what are the length of individual sessions? Are they shorter? Are they longer? It could have to do with, you know, the concept of recovery. How are you applying recovery in training? Um, Do you approach that as something where you need to not engage in the activity Do you approach that with a concept of active recovery? Do you not really apply recovery at all? Uh, We'll do some exploration in the pod down the road about the concept of recovery. Is it actually even a real thing? Um, It could be total volume over multiple sessions. Um, What's the scale where you look at that? Runners love to count up miles run over a seven-day period. But I have tinkered around when I used to count my miles for running and pay really, really pay attention to that. And this was before Strava and, you know, you were writing it down or just adding it up in your head. And I realized that, well, if I change the start and end dates of the weeks, I could sometimes have very different total numbers of miles because you're not necessarily doing the literally exact same pattern every single week unless you're Frank Shorter. 
um, who famously did the exact same leak every week for his whole racing career, right? You know, I guess different people have, you know, different areas in which they feel comfortable and competent, and that worked for him. So what this means is the scales on which we think that there are different pieces of volume. I also think adding up different aspects of training as volume, you know, because not every minute of training is counted equally. You're doing different things because you're trying to, again, elicit different results. And if you see certain things as being more critical to getting that epigenetic kind of response, right, of like, how can I get my body to express more of this kind of trait or adaptation, maybe that's, you know, mitochondrial biogenesis is, you know, a big understanding that people are applying when they're thinking about, well, what um, physiologically are really important things and sort of driving endurance performance and improvement in endurance performance. Is that a part of that? But you can also be looking at things like, you know, cultivating confidence. You know, it's certainly true that if you're executing an, an amount of training that really makes you feel highly confident and competent, that that is also important. Is it worth doing that extra 60 minutes because it is adding to that psychological capacity? Because it is certainly true that mindsets play an overwhelming factor in, in tying this stuff together. I think our first on the couch series episode, for example, is going to talk about identity and how that's constructed and how that influences how we engage with spaces around that. And the volume of work that we do can become a part of identity. And I think that's why people want to talk about how much they do, because rightly or wrongly, we have culturally come to define that as reflective of our capacity as individuals. So thinking about that volume, there's multiple things that you can lever in there and right as you dial that knob, right, and maybe these knobs aren't singular, right? Maybe each knob has its own subset of controls below that sort of master control, right? And how are we dialing that stuff in? What is the benefit? What are we trying to accomplish? Another factor is intensity. And when you think about these four factors, you want to recognize that they're very much interrelated, uh, in a sense, because volume can be a factor of intensity too. But I think when we think about intensity, we could think about force or work needed for each unit of training. And then you need to know logically, well, what is a unit of training, right? How do you determine that? And you want to determine that uh, in a rational process, right? You have some sort of substantive way to sort of view that instead of just sort of arbitrarily selecting that you know like again you see that crossover of like a mile or an hour of training like what is that really worth right they're not all being done in the same way you know the mile 10 of a 10 mile run is not the same necessarily as mile one of the 10 mile run but maybe though at the same time there's a context where depending on your level of fitness and proficiency depending on the context of what you've been doing overall, maybe they aren't that dissimilar, you know? So identifying where is that point of, of shift where that same piece of intensity per unit is now actually different. So doing 200 watts or doing seven minute pace in the first 15 minutes of a training session might feel a particular way. 
But at some point, that is going to become increasingly difficult. And I think the marathon is a space where people learn that for sure. If you've ever done a marathon, you know, you get to a certain point, it's very common for that effort that was very easy or mindless at the beginning to then suddenly become a struggle. And there's other factors that can influence that. But the reality is you're producing the same velocity of running or on the bike if you've ever done some of these big distance gravel races or if you've done stage races you see that too where all you're still 200 watts but it's not actually right there because i mean it is technically actually 200 watts right we're not this isn't a magic trick but it's not actually 200 watts in terms of what are you experiencing how is your body responding to that so when we think about intensity it's the combination of force applied and then work needed and that that is both sort of the external mechanical thing but it's also what is the mental force the internal energy demand because you see breakdown and ability to produce that over time and recognizing that and regulating that is a really important skill set in terms of training and also in in terms of racing because it does influence performance here's a third thing frequency how often do you perform sessions, okay? And how often do you perform sessions of different kinds? Now, I find it to be really beneficial to exercise twice a day, but for a lot of people, working out twice a day is a foreign concept. And I certainly understand that you know people have competing aspirations in life and they're working on different things, but in theory, I don't really think, let's say you wanted, let's say you do seven hours a week, let's say you're an out on average, an hour a day person. Well, I think that you could probably do two a day. If you wanted to, you could break that up in terms of doing two 30 minute sessions. And just by doing that, now you're changing the frequency. And that's a very different experience. Now we do run into, of course, the reality of time management, what's your schedule and, you know, like the seven day training pattern itself revolves around the schedules that we create in society, right? People have different jobs and you have to organize around that. But it just because the stereotype of doubling is something that we think of as being this special practice or being an elite practice, I mean, not to sound simplistic, but I think it's profoundly true. Does it really seem rational to say that, oh, you know, in a much more active time in human history that people could only do one 30-minute activity and then they had to sit down the rest of the day. I think that when we apply that kind of bigger picture perspective that not only in sort of modern recorded human history, not talking about the two to four million years of hominid evolution, but in modern recorded human history, what we're looking at is it is simply a fact that people are meant to be more active and that our anxieties or our doubts about what is and isn't appropriate levels of activity are usually way off base. And to the extent that we want to run into problems with that, that's a problem of intensity, right? And so volume is also integrated with intensity when you conceptualize it properly. And then frequency, right, is another layer. So although we're talking about these things as knobs that we're calibrating to find this kind of ideal personal metricification, if you will, of what we're trying to accomplish in training, the reality is, is that 
like they're all very much codependent and the extent to which you can manipulate one requires manipulation of the others but frequency is of great utility if you can handle a training environment of greater frequency you are going to have to be more capable of handling adversity okay and then you normalize i think engagement with exercise through frequency versus developing this sort of like avoidant pattern and i would ask how beneficial is it to you as an athlete to have this fear or this like pedestalization of training sessions where there are these special unique things that you only do periodically and i know a lot of the research about high intensity training has really emphasized this notion that there's a really minimalistic need. I mean, down to the points of training on the scale of less than 30 minutes or less than 10 minutes and what benefit can you achieve there? And I, I understand, right, there's a natural curiosity and then sort of relating to this idea of, well, public health guidelines or public health you know, interventions. I mean, what does it really say about where we have sort of developed as cultures and societies if within those domains we're thinking about exercise as something that needs to be accomplished within the smallest amount of time possible, right? And that why? To liberate us to do what? To watch television, to be passive, to, you know, go to work, to make other people money, right? I mean, where does this stuff come from? I think the value of being active more frequently and not just with volume, but frequency, I think also has cognitive mental health benefits. It's cognitively strengthening. And that's other things you're engaging with that frequency is that's another cognitive stress and stimulus. And speaking of stress, I think we can say stress in particular is its own component. And this is we're sort of saying to refer to things outside of the above three factors. I think it's certainly true that volume, intensity, frequency pertain to stress. You could argue they are forms of stress, and I think that would be not just a reasonable argument, but I think that would be the right interpretation. But we can also look at stresses and, well, what about the kinds of stresses that exist outside of those spaces and to sort of include those together into this one category? Weather, the time of day. What do you allow yourself in the context of training? Do you use a fan? Do you open the window if you're training on a Wahoo kicker? Do you train in landscapes and geographies and environments that are stimulating? Do you train by yourself? Do you train with other people? Do you make it cognitively simple? you make it cognitively complex? It's not necessarily bad that it's cognitively complex. It's not necessarily good that it's cognitively simple, right? We're engaging the brain, right? We are not just building fitness, but we're practicing things. And that means the brain is responding, developing, right? You know, you think about myelin um, as something that grow, seems to grow in the brain as we practice more and more and more. There's this interesting TED-Ed video that talks about um, the best practices for practicing stuff or the most effective way to practice to get better at things. And they refer to a study where... They had um, a group of proficient basketball players practice free throw shooting, and then a second group just visualized the free throw shooting in their head and sort of mentally rehearsed, you know, if you will, without the actual physical action of practice. And apparently the study found that both groups improved by about the same amount in their free throw shooting percentage. Now, I haven't read the study, 
Um, so I think it would be interesting to learn more about that. You know, maybe that seems to be a little overstated, but it certainly, I think, is evidence of the fact that things are happening in the brain. And so we think about how we, you know, manage that stress, right? And we want that cognitive adaptation, but we also need to be mindful that we can become cognitively fatigued and cognitively overloaded. Um, think about something as simple as music. I mean, people talk about and running the concept of music doping. Different people have different relationships to music and exercise. I went through a phase in high school where I went running with a CD player and a belt and listened to um, Pearl Jam and The Doors. And I've never really listened to music since. I don't, doesn't really something that appealed to me. Um, I sort of sometimes think, oh, it might be nice to have like an audio book, um, you know, or something like that. And I'll listen to that if I'm riding uh, indoors on the trainer by myself, but I'm going outside and don't listen to, listen to that stuff. And my big, you know, concern with that is that I feel you, you need to have that auditory awareness of your environment because you, I find that I detect where the cars are based on the sound first. You know, when you start to develop these, you know, you know, patterns of recognition, you can hear that, you know, sound waves created by the vehicle moving through the air before you see it. And you have that awareness. And I think it really increases your safety in terms of being outside running and riding. And similarly, you know, in the when it's darker out, you know, you can see the headlights on the telephone pole wires reflecting off of those oftentimes before the car comes around the corner, right? And being aware of your environment, I think is important. Um, but, you know, I, I don't personally care if people want to use music in their 5k or their whatever distance, their marathon or whatever. I, I think that's fine. I don't feel that it's competitively unfair, but I do know and have experienced, you know, using music like indoors um, on the Wahoo Kicker that it can definitely sort of give you a different sense of engagement or sort of stimulus if, you know, you're feeling that music at that time. And then there are times when, you know, for me, I'm not really feeling any particular kind of music. And if I was dependent on using that music as that stimulus to help get me into that state of intensity in training, right, would that become a limiting factor, right? And am I making it more complicated? What happens when I take that away in racing? Am I not going to be able to access that level of intensity, right? Do I, am I using that to distract myself? Is that always good? You know, maybe you use music at a particular time and then you need to maybe regulate that and phase that out gradually as you progress through your training, right? That's an example of regulating the stress. Um, do you use races to create your harder training? How are you accessing that? How are you distributing that concept of stress, right? And that relates to the concept of music, that relates to a, I think, an extension of the concept of are we making it cognitively simple or cognitively complex? You know, we think about this concept of what kinds of training do people do that are maybe really adrenally driven or sort of seem to engage that just amped up level of focus. Is the purpose there to make it as challenging to get into that state as possible as the purpose to accomplish the work and then you want to make it as easy as to do that as possible. Are you trying to mix and match that? And then, you know, you can continue to find different aspects of stress. And I think that's where as individuals, we find different things to be stressful. And, you know, I think ironically, 
we're trying to get to the point where we are experiencing the least stress because that's going to give us that ease of ability in terms of performance. But in order to get to that point, we need to be engaging with stresses because just as engaging with adversity leaves us better equipped to handle future adversity, right? We need that sort of short-term or in-preparation stressors in order to get to the point where in the future, whether that's in future training, we're going to be able to adapt. And overall, that concept of adapting, when we combine these knobs right on our board and we're adjusting them, volume, intensity, frequency, stress, these, we're turning these to lever, right? And apply these levers and these forces to shape our training. And the purpose of the training is to create an environment. And we're taking advantage of, or in a different sense, we're engaging or exploiting the fact that the body is going to respond and adapt to the environment. And that's what we're trying to do as we train up towards that three-week concept goal in May. If we want to be able to engage in that environment, in that prescription of training, which creates a certain environment of adversity, and we want to find that we are not depreciating or declining or fatiguing as we engage with that level of adversity. So that means we need to be scaling up our level of adversity. We need to be transitioning through a sequences of environments. And so we're creating environment, we're engaging with that space, and then we're adapting to that. And as we adapt, that environment feels easier. And rather than have this anxiety of I need to constantly ramp up, you set a level of work and then you adjust to that. And then there comes a point where it's now easy enough that you can logically add an additional level of work. But I think it's much harder to train over the longer term and to adapt if you're constantly every week saying I need to make this progression. Um, and it's, you know, we push for this stuff. I think one of the reasons why we see that is because a lot of us, our introduction to sport is in these, you know, high school sports environments where a season is maybe two months or something. And so the athletic problem becomes, well, how do you engage the athletic participants over an eight week period? And, you know, that's just really not the scale of meaningful participation in athletics in a bigger life perspective. And you see ideas like, you know, you can only train for X amount of time and then you need to take a break, you know, and again, that like anti-activity mindset. And when you do that, right, you're not creating the environment. And I think when we change gears in our thinking, I suppose it's also a mindset shift. And for some people it might be a paradigm issue, too, of I need to create the environment of training. I need to engage myself in a space that I'm sort of like cultivating, right? And even if the reality is maybe I live a very comfortable life compared to how people lived a million years ago, our hominid ancestor lived a million years ago, well, the processes of adaptation and response are still there, right? And that's one of the features that we know is true because if you didn't have adaptive response, then training would be an impossibility, right? So we know that that's there. And so what we want to do is we want to maximize our engagement with that. And we're doing this by thinking about the concept of the environment. And we don't want to be too 
particularly oriented towards layers. We want to think in aggregate terms, which we've outlined in the podcast in general. You know, you can also check out our Learn to Fly series of episodes, and in particular, the finale of that, where we talk about this concept of improvisation and training. And that's a part of creating the environment. Making those changes and adjustments aren't about backing off and reducing the pressure. You're actually like maintaining that optimal environment. It's a garden. You know, you have to react to and respond to the environment to maintain that those optimal conditions to grow the things you want to grow and eliminate the things that you don't want to sort of nurture or encourage. You know, an example of that could be um, you know, quitting or abandoning is not a good skill to be developing. Um, you know, but there are times when you need to know when to stop. And in training, that means you need to create an environment for yourself in which you can engage with it. I think most of what you do should feel good. You should feel strong, right? It's challenging, but you should be there should be that flow psychology balance between the challenge and the skill that you're assigning to yourself, okay, or that is being, you know, directed to you if there's, you know, a coach or, or maybe even multiple people that you're collaborating with when you're trying to put this stuff in place. And this is where FTP testing or setting high levels of thresholds for different training intensities can become really problematic. You know, we can test that. We can track and we can say, well, at four millimoles of lactate, what can I produce in terms of work or in terms of velocity? And is that developing over time? But that, I think, encourages us to drive ourselves into the ground. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be training at those intensities. That's not productive. That's not a good space to be in for training. And I know this is heresy, and I'll probably be excommunicated or burned at the stake for um saying, you know, that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth here, but we need to work within our actual tolerances. And if your actual tolerance is that FTP number or that threshold number, then by all means, then it would be appropriate to engage in that. But the overwhelming majority of people aren't functioning at that level. And then even if you do have that tolerance, you have to ask yourself, is this the best opportunity cost of training? So yes, this is challenging, but there's a difference between challenges that lead us having more energy and engagement versus challenges that leave us feeling totally fried. So your benefit isn't proportional to the challenges that you assign from yourself. You know, if you hit yourself on the head with a brick, um, you know, you're not going to grow from that. You're just going to learn to hate bricks. And then eventually you're going to leave because you don't want to keep getting hit over the head with the environment, right? We need to be in a space that is like, you know, that's what's interesting is the space is a challenge. And for people who are sort of less to our level, they might go into that space and they might find that to be overwhelming. But for us, you know, it's the garden. It takes energy. It takes cultivation. It takes care. It takes mindfulness, you know, and it can be tiring, but it's a place that we want to be because we are really sort of in that engaged state. And that's like a positive thing. We're moving towards self-actualization. It's not just the race or the performance. The training process itself should bring out that experience of self-actualization. And I think that um, in major part, there's a huge variance in, even if you want to use that functional threshold power, or you could say 
functional threshold velocity if you want to cross that over to running or you know some other discipline uh, where you're not measuring power but you're more reliant on velocity as an indicator of work um, but there's variance in that you know from day to day and that's why you see the lactate threshold testing being meaningful of combining your sensory awareness with what's going on and then putting the check on that through that sort of trying to find that objective measure you know today for example i ran you know did my run this morning and i did four by 2k with a minute 45 jog at about lactate threshold intensity and then i say about because i don't bring the meter when i'm running because the test strips need to be stored um, at temperatures above 58 degrees and when it's 12 degrees outside it's probably not going to work to have those out there for an hour i don't know you know what the um, time to um, failure with the test strips in terms of the temperature is but they're expensive enough that it's not worth doing that but then i came back in the afternoon and i did about 60 minutes on the bike you know riding self-selected towards that lactate threshold and i checked you know um, like a third of the way and then at the end of the ride and I kept the millimole was steady at that 1.5 millimole which for me is about you know the level I would see my lactate turn point so I know that I'm engaging with that intensity properly um, and that testing right helps to verify and account for that fluctuation from one day to the next you're going to limit your ability to progress if you're too trapped or stuck in a sense, or engage with this idea of I need to go out and execute this stuff. And I think that's where people get into the situation of they're not feeling good on a regular basis because that's not working for them. Because like they're, you know, really experiencing the reality that the fluctuations from one day to the next, I don't have control over my preparation, what I'm doing. And this has been an observation of, you know, interval training for a long time is you can't be ready necessarily on the day to do it. And if that's the case, then you're not getting any value out of it at all because the whole value is predicated on you're not spending very much time doing it, so you damn well better hit those requisite intensities. Well, what happens if you can't hit those intensities? You basically have now accomplished nothing because you've created very little stimulus. And I also think it's hard to adapt from those interval models because it's a low frequency situation and when you have a low frequency training structure you're really not creating an environment that's constantly right creating that general pressure or signal to the body to you know adapt and, and express the attributes that you're trying to encourage it to bring out and in a weird way I've felt that I've done races where I felt that my FTP if you will has improved over the course of the race and maybe there's lots of explanations for that phenomena or that possibility but it's certainly true to my experience where at the beginning you know I've been can feel right the, the ceiling on what my work capacity is is low and then maybe 40 minutes in all of a sudden that lid comes off the jar and it really shifts and I think there's a lot of potential explanations for that and maybe the most obvious would be that there's um, psychological or central governor reasons or whatever but right the fact remains that there's variance and even within a session it, you don't necessarily experience a linear decline you might actually you know experience an undulation right where and you you know periods of recovery and exertion i think that's a reflection too of you know what's your core fitness and you know again that classical sense of aerobic fitness even though the aerobic anaerobic distinction is kind of um you know technically inaccurate and so you know workout failure 
right, is something that we're trying to avoid. Okay, so what we need to do is we need to find the balance of the above four factors. And if you're experienced and you apply the kinds of improv strategies in your training, you might already be pretty good at this. And that doesn't, we don't reach like a ceiling of this stuff because the variables are constantly shifting and there's always the potential to try to um, find, you know, stuff that's different. I like the phrase um, that I've heard, you know, of quote, novel stimulus, unquote. I think that's an interesting way to think about it, that it's not about constantly trying to recreate the optimal framework or pattern, but that you're trying to find new or better things to do. So if you're looking to break out of more prescriptive approaches and want to apply some of these things that we talk about in this podcast and in this series for the first time, then now we want to talk about how to do this. And I think we've framed sufficiently here that we can actually now get to that. So let's give an example of how to progress a single session of running and then also a single session of cycling. And then we'll also talk about the example of how you might progress a training week as sort of like, right, training week maybe being, you know, one unit or pattern of training. And I think instead of thinking on the scale of workouts, at absolute minimum, you need to think of on the scale of a week and that a week is a workout. You know, a week is where you really are seeing a meaningful stimulus. You know, the one session Again, you know, when you look at studies on this stuff and you can watch all a lot of stuff now on YouTube of people presenting papers or giving talks at these sports exercise conferences and you know, when you look at the structure of the study, it's it's they they are making a determination in the study the bias in a lot of these studies is like well what is the acceptable unit of training and usually it's a it's a prescription of a session. And I understand there's limitations to these things in terms of designing the study, but you know, there's also limitations in terms of what people think um, the study should be designed in order to work around, right? And so our idea of like, well, comparing the one session to the one session, well, that's not training, okay? And that's not best practice for training either. So you're studying stuff that literally isn't what people try to do who are trying to get good at this stuff. So the idea that you can look at these studies and reach these very like objective conclusions I think is a total misnomer, but we just, for the most part, are hearing studies show that, and we've been conditioned to just sort of be like, oh my goodness, the Oracle of Delphi has spoken, you know, and, you know, we must, you know, bow our heads to the, you know, dictates of prophecy. So um, I'll also refer here to some workout ideas that I've referred to in some past episodes, um, so we can sort sort of tap into our schema from those other episodes to better access the concept that we're working on here. Um, and if you haven't tuned in to all of the episodes, then some of this stuff will be new. So I'll try to cover, um, you know, enough of that for people who fit into both groups. So let's think about a target first. Let's say we want to do, uh, and here we'll talk about a running session. Let's say we want to do approximately 40 minutes of work where we are accessing faster running or getting that quote unquote aerobic demand, but, you know, sort of, and by that we can really maybe say, lactate threshold demand or mitochondrial biogenesis demand, but are not applying work periods that are so long that we start to break down and then sort of fall off of the power trying to apply um, to the system in terms of doing this. So an example of a session that I have used with athletes in the past would be 20 times 200. And in this kind of a session, you would be, depending on your velocity, right? And if your velocity is different, then maybe 
it would change this. But the 20 by 200 is accessing this sort of idea of, okay, there's that, you know, initial 10, you know, five to 10 meters of acceleration, but then you're able to move quickly and another, and, you know, as a consequence, move with a pretty good amount of force for maybe 35 to 45 seconds. And then you back off and you go down to chill tempo for, you know, about twice that length of time, you know, maybe 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, right? And then you, you know, are refreshed and you access that. And so, you know, when we think about training, right, we want to say we are applying stress, but we also want to say that we're practicing something. And the practice concept is important to keep in mind, because if you are, you know, honking a clarinet, you're not practicing, right? You're just creating garbage. You have to stay within your skill level in order to actually be engaging in practice. And with this kind of concept of repetition work, interval work, I think this is where the true value of that should be found and that it allows you to do sorts of higher levels of proficiency or work, but still within a proficiency state. Whereas if you try to extend that for, you know, the entire, you know, continuum of that, which would be, what is that, 4,000 meters? Like, that's not going to happen, okay? So, you know, you can have more advanced versions of this too, right? Just like you can have a more regressed version, a variation is the 16 by 200 that my brother um, has used where he'll alternate between 35 and 45. And, you know, when we've, in this conversation that happened, I think, over last summer, you know, it was kind of like floating up about the idea of like, oh man, you know, what if I could do some, you know, 200s and, and 31? And well, that would be great, right? But why go to that point, right? Now you're just pushing for stuff and then you're making it about the number of like, oh, I'd feel really legit if I could do that. Well, that's not the basis on which you should design a session. So when you figure out, you know, what you're doing with a session, it's working within your capacity and then trying to practice that, you know, a bunch of times. And so high repetition count is really useful. And you're better off having more repetitions, and then you use the rest to facilitate executing a number of repetitions. You don't get more benefit um, from doing, you know, four repetitions with very little rest. You know, you know, or in other words, right, having the rest so limited that it limits the amount of training and practice you can do. You know, more is better and you know less is more in terms of less intensity right you know you're not trying to thrash um and i think you know with swimming you know it's particularly prevalent um where with swimming it's like you have to work within your capacity because if you're you know practicing blowing up you're sort of grooving that right just like if you practice quitting when you reach to a certain point then like that becomes the sort of like logical response right? And your reasoning response or your pattern of movement response, like these things matter. And, you know, you don't want to engage that in the incorrect way. So if you have that session, you know, you might do that, you know, for three weeks, right? You might do that for six months, right? It's as long as you are feeling that that's accessing that state of adaptive pressure, that you're getting stimulus from that, you know, that works. You might evolve into something like those 16 by 200s alternating 35, 45, like my brother, right? And, you know, some people would look at that and be like, oh man, holy crap, that's, 
so hard, but it's all subjective. It's all relative. For him, it would be boring and understimulating, um, and it wouldn't be meaningful practice to you know take such a slow um, recovery in between, right? Um, you know, or if he was going to go slower, it would need to be alternate 200, 100, right? And you can you know mix that up too. It doesn't have to be the same exact thing, but it's thinking about how long can I work before I start to hit that wall of deterioration and then I need to not seek that out. I need to stay below that. In all contexts, always look for the threshold of proficiency and try to work. You can work up to it and you can try to go up to it multiple times and that's where you get better at stuff. Okay, When you go over that, you really aren't getting the full benefit that you could be getting. You know, and again, you know, I think it's that study design bias. There's a limitation to these studies when they, you know, aren't comparing the true opportunity cost of training. Let's think about uh, an example of a cycling session. Let's say we want to do a session where the goal is to improve our endurance. So if that's what we're doing, we want to think about, well, what's limiting our endurance, right? And that's a combination of being able to perform a lot of work, but endurance is also about, you know, doing things at a reasonable level of work, right? Our goal isn't to walk um, our bicycle around the course, right? We want to be able to ride. We want to be able to keep up. And we want to be able, because, you know, we want to be at that level of exertion where it's fun and it's exciting to work hard. And we want to be able to sustain that over, you know, the course of a race. And that's what makes... That's what makes any of these sports with racing exciting, right? Is it's that ability to be engaged with the, from a competitive sense and not feel like you're just constantly getting shot out the back and being totally demoralized. So here's a session here. Um, 20 times 2 minutes at, let's say, 2 millimole because there's nothing magic about that. But it seems like for a lot of people, that 2 millimole number might be your lactate threshold. So let's say that that's true, so then you might target whatever your 2 millimole intensity is. But if you have a different value at lactate threshold, then you would target that instead. And then you could have a 50-second interval where the goal would be to take your foot off the gas in terms of the muscular exertion, but not so much that the heart rate drops. So you kind of have this concept of a continuous cardiovascular work rate where your heart rate sort of stays constant throughout, but you're structuring these breaks in terms of the muscular exertion factor. And I think that's an interesting concept to tinker with, right, in terms of building our endurance. So instead of riding into failure and trying to hold three times, you know, 40 minutes straight up, which might sound really intimidating, well, now you're accessing this in this way. And you might be saying, well, what's this obsession with you know, numbers, you know, that start in two or, you know, especially the number 20. Well, uh, the 2200s is because, um, you know, we wanted to create something that, you know, was cognitively rewarding where it seemed uh, challenging or intimidating, even though, you know, I had the awareness as the coach that that wouldn't be the case, but it benefits the athletes to be like, man, I did 20 by 200, you know, and if down the road they're like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm not really stoked about that. I'm not getting amped about that. Well, that would be because they've matured as an athlete and they're no longer looking for that kind of, you know, affirmation or, you know, self-esteem boost. 
Um, in this case, it's 20 by two minutes because, um, you know, when I first put this thing together to do for myself, um, I realized that, you know, when you put down a Zwift interval block, you can only set it up to 20. That's all they allow you to do. I don't really know why the custom workout thing is kind of got some weird constraints on it. I think one of the things that people often want to hear though, from this is say, okay, you know, what is the workout and then how do I specifically implement this? Okay. So you might say, well, so this is the workout and I just keep doing this again and again. And when do I change it? And I think that there's sometimes a frustration, um, when people sort of can't tell you that. And I think what we want to be doing as athletes, and then this is sort of the responsibility maybe of coaches or, you know, talking amongst ourselves as athletes is to sort of shift our mindset about that because it's actually not good to be prescriptive in that way because we don't really know what the response is going to be. So you might take something like this and say, well, what could be sort of a target for this? So one thing you could do is you might say, man, I'd like to be able to do three by 40 minutes. That would be a really good sign of progress right? Do I do these work bouts continuously? And so what you could do is you could start to reduce, um, you know, that heart rate coast interval by five seconds, you know, and over 10 weeks, then you could progress down to where you have, you know, at that ninth week, you have a five second break, uh, you know, essentially nothing. Um, and this is kind of like the Milo of Creek concept of your sort of like, you know, working within, you know, your tolerance, and then you're raising your tolerance through, you know, reasonable uh, steps that your brain and your body can handle. And then in that 10th week, maybe you're doing, you know, three by 40 minutes, something that you didn't think you could do at the beginning, right? So that could be another, you know, way to develop that. But that's also, you know, you could ask, like, how beneficial is that? You know, are you getting the same physical benefit from doing this way the first time? Right, maybe there is no additional benefit, or the additional benefit is marginal. So marginal is that maybe you don't even it's not even really worth doing. But what about that mental benefit? Right? Is it cognitively rewarding? Are you sort of improving your ability to handle adversity to be like, I can work like that for 40 minutes three times? Does that change your mindset, right, in some meaningful, significant way? And you know, you'd also would want to weigh this in terms of like, what's your frequency of work, right? So these two things, a running session, a cycling session, um, and, you know, we'll probably do other episodes where we talk more specifically about uh, workouts, but we're trying to just throw some things in here in, in the broader context of what we're talking about. So let's think about developing our volume. How might we be developing our volume in this process? So let's say you exercise five days a week for an average of 45 minutes on the days that you do work out. Um, well, progressions that you could do, right? You could move to exercising two times a day, right? Um, and you could go from seven hours a week to 16 hours a week, I think, fairly quickly. Um, I think that, you know, getting to where you average, you know, two hours a day I mean, it could be two one-hour periods of activity a day is very reasonable. I mean, I think obviously it's a lifestyle choice at some level. Um, and, you know, how much do you enjoy being active and doing these kinds of activities? But that's also informed by the intensity and by the kind of environment and the space that you're creating for yourself. If your garden is full of poison ivy, chances are you're going to want to be in there as little as possible, right? So make sure you are... Um, planting the kinds of flowers that you find 
most pleasant, right? Make that a space that you seek out, and then you're going to be able to engage in this. Um, and then when you're developing this volume, things like the 10% every week rule is a bunch of crap. I think you're going to develop in jumps, and I think that we all know when we are reaching a limit, but sometimes kind of that sense of like, oh, good, I found the limit. Now the benefit will start to occur. You know, again, that Jim Ryan concept that we've mentioned before on the podcast of Jim Ryan saying, well, we didn't consider, you know, the training to really have begun until, you know, the workout got hard. Well, that's pearls of wisdom from the reflections of somebody on when they were a teenager, which, you know, I don't want to downplay, you know, the wisdom of youth. But at the same time, I think that, you know, we know that the perspectives of people when they're 16, 17 years old, maybe sometimes are more constrained, right? And do we really want to take that kind of thing as axiomatic of the point at which the benefit occurs, right? And then again, we don't know exactly how hard Jim Ryan experienced those workouts. You know, how much of that was informed by him being told that it was hard, and so he interpreted it as hard, right? It's the concept of like, you know, if I'm seeing green, and you're looking at that color, you're, and we've all learned that that's green, you could actually be seeing the shade of color that's purple. Now, that's probably might not actually be true, but in theory, how would we really know that, right? Because we both learned to call that green, right? And so, right, how can we really uh, control for that? So where we get these principles of adjustment, right, aren't based on that concept. Um, so you develop your volume kind of like as you feel, Right. And when you have that end concept in mind of what we were trying to accomplish in this WinPro Nets model, you'd be trying to say, okay, well, instead of like I have this race and like that could mean anything, or and then saying, well, I need to, you know, energy system, this VO2 max thing, and I don't understand it, but I just sort of am hearing this. Um, you know, VO2 max, you know, is a bit of a fallacy anyway. And, you know, you can um, find some stuff on that. Um, Steve Magnus did a really nice write up on. Um, his Science of Running page or blog about that, which is worth checking out. Um, and I think I posted that at one point on the Black Cats Run Instagram story too. But when you're trying to develop your volume, right, develop your weeks of training over time, if you know what you're working towards, you can kind of sort of scale that and you can say, okay, where am I now? What would be an additional step? So if you know, I want to be able to run 20 miles, well, you know that, okay, you know, maybe I want to try adding a mile. And then if you're using the concept, let me work within my tolerance of proficiency, I only want to be running and riding and doing whatever other training uh, interventions I'm applying to the extent that I can do so proficiently. So if you work within those two things, the outer bound of here's where I want to get, I don't need to get there until May, I have started in September, okay, what could that scale look like? but it's not going to be a week to week. Every week I add X amount, it's going to be, okay, I'm at this level. I'm going to habituate to that. This is going to, I'm going to become homeostatic in this garden. And then, okay, I'm going to bring in some new plants. I'm going to add this new dimension for myself to work on. Um, And when you're doing this, right, that's self-evaluative. And then it's also engaged with a coach. And I think you're going to know if you have a good coach helping you with this stuff, if they aren't just sort of scaling it based on, you know, some click and drag progression from a spreadsheet, that's not valuable. You could do that on your own. 
the purpose of the coach should be to bring that level of nuance and not, you know, just like, oh, well, here's what, you know, you know, the equation that I applied on the script spreadsheet says, and we're just going to like scale this across, you know, it does. I mean, if that works, that's just sort of like blind luck. That's not, you know, you know, wisdom of coaching. Okay. So what about some conclusions here, right? In terms of how are we bridging this gap from point September to point May? One, None of these exemplars might be the right progression for you. They're, they aren't magic workouts, um, but they're an attempt to illustrate the concept, right? And so you have to try things, and it's not about fun. And so it's like you could do these workouts, so like, oh, that's really hard. Then you shouldn't be doing it. That's not what you want to do. But if you try it, and you're like, I like how that feels. That's challenging. That's rewarding. It's repeatable. Um, that it's not something that I would just mindlessly do every day, then maybe you could specifically work with those. And if you have questions about, uh, you know, workout concepts or examples, feel free to message us on um, our Instagram. We're happy to engage with people and and make suggestions. Um, You know, and we aren't trying to talk about um, some kind of absurdist con artistry here um, when we're talking about being under control and not going into that you know, pain zone, um, the way people seem to think that you should. There's actually a lot of evidence that shows that working at, you know, particular levels of work um, that are within our limitations and that you can guide that with physiological measuring sticks like, you know, lactate meters, um, you know, heart rate to some extent, power to some extent, pace to some extent is effective. But those physiological measuring sticks can also get you totally off base and you know your brain and your self-evaluation and your sense of what you can do um, is a really powerful tool and you should maybe try to enable that instead of trying to do battle with that Um, and getting to the point where you can do that is one of the big issues we're trying to confront here and making this progression to winning the pro national road race and I would argue if you haven't done that it's going to be way harder to win because if you've done that you will know what you're capable of doing because you will have that self-awareness. And this isn't some sort of like um, Zen transcendence. Like we have the capacity to do this. It's really not that complicated. It's just that we've been trained to not listen to those sorts of pieces of sensory feedback. It's also about the balancing process and distributing the workload and figuring out how to do that in such a way that we're doing a lot of work such that we are really like constantly in that environment of adaptation. In particular, frequency and volume are really key to doing that. But then recognizing that it's like our garden, right? And it needs to be our space and it needs to work for us. And it might start out very small and modest, but if it's really well cultivated, you can start to extend your skill and make that space bigger and bigger. And we try to verify improvements through performance. You know, building up to this stuff is is real. Um, it's real adversity to do challenging training. And adversity is something we develop an ability to handle by working at that cognitive wobble level. You can see um, our top secret guest episode with Amanda Black Ingersoll where we talk about proximal development and how to apply that. Over time, the brain is going to improve in its ability to handle the challenge. Consider toggling the difficulty on a video game metaphor we've used before 
But you bring up that challenge, you bring it down, things feel a little bit easier. Okay, so it's not to say that the improvement happens in recovery, but it's like cognitive adaption through that sense of, okay, going up to sort of finding that boundary of proficiency, coming back down and continuing to explore and engage in that space with frequency. Um, It's trial and error here, not because we lack expertise, but because I would say people who don't think this can be done through trial and error, or which is to say that people think that, you know, trial and error is a sign of incompetence. Um, I don't think that they know what they're talking about because trial and error is the only way to learn. That is how we learn. Uh, experimentation is a process of trial and error, right? The best knowledge comes from trial and error. The belief that you wouldn't have trial and error is the belief that you can just somehow logically and automatically know. And that's simply not true. I think it's disrespectful, frankly, of you know the diversity of all of us as individual people to think that there's no need for trial and error. And I will be honest with you, it's possible I have a bias here because I find that process to be enjoyable. You know, solving that puzzle and the fact that the puzzle pieces are constantly changing and what we're trying to construct is constantly shifting is a part of what's engaging. It is a, you know, thinking person's um, thing to do. And I think that can be a huge rewarding part of this. And we don't want to under engage with that and take away from that. Because when you do, I think you really depreciate um, the long term motivation. For my part, as a coach, I have to work with and talk with somebody. I can't give somebody, you know, this, okay, well, here's the magic pill. And you just take this bad boy and you're, you know, you're good to go, you know, pat you on the back, you know, send me 500 bucks a month. And if you're doing that, you know, like I'd really reevaluate that. I think you're getting screwed. Um, reflection and evaluation of training and your engagement and response to it is the most important thing that you can do. You'll probably get to the point where you can do this stuff, quote, the right way, unquote, but you have to work towards that. And even then, the goal isn't to get to that optimal solution and stay there. I think optimality is a slippery concept. It's sort of this, you know, grease pole that we're trying to climb, but it's um, the act of trying to get there and figure it out that's really what's optimal. It's not something that we're ever going to arrive at. Another way to think about it, it's like a heat mirage in the desert. Another significant conclusion in our list of conclusions, people lie constantly. You know, I sometimes get like an existential crisis looking at uh, endurance sports media, especially the stuff that is produced by status performers. And on the one hand, I get the need or desire to market yourself in order to reach whatever point you're trying to get to. I don't think that's an invalid you know, aspiration. And I think you know, narratives have their own integrity um, you know, in their own space. But on the other hand, um, people are lying in the sense that they're presenting what's going to be rewarded. And you know, we'll talk more about how this kind of intersects with uh, identity on our upcoming um, On the Couch episode that we've been uh, working diligently on for a little while here, researching and planning. Um, and just because they assert that they are following whatever particular model or structure or sort of like engaged intensity and you know, sort of pain space of training, um, don't take what they say at face value. It's simply not always going to be honest. The number one incentive of the status performer 
competing in the social media market space is to compete successfully in that space. The number one intention is to cultivate and maintain audience. And is that bad? I don't know if that's bad. You know, the reality is that our market model of how can you make income, how can you make a lifestyle in terms of supporting that lifestyle out of sport, that's what you need to do because as a society of consumers, we're choosing to reward that behavior. But it's one thing to sort of engage with the narrative as a consumer or a spectator. It's another thing to say that these are truisms that I should be trying to interpret and apply to what's going on. The way that we practice and learn is the way that we practice and learn. Your training progression and your engagement with these things like needs to be subjective to you. You know, the... Um, you know, I decided not to do the workout because I was feeling stale. That's not what make people excited. The people want bread and games. The people want blood. The people want Leonidas. Thanks for checking out today's episode of Black Cats Run. We have one more upcoming segment in our Win Pro Nats podcast series. We are going to talk about what do you do if you get to May, if you master that concept and you exit and you execute that to perfection. How do you bridge that gap between May and the national road race? And then as for the road race itself, how do you go there? How do you execute? How do you get to the actual finish line before everybody else? You can check us out on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. Send us a message. Let us know if you're enjoying the pod. We're available for consultation. Um, if you are interested uh, in hearing more about how you can apply some of the concepts and ideas that are discussed on the pod to your training in particular, we will also be forthcoming down the road with content on the pod where we talk specifically about how to start up. If you aren't a runner, but you want to add running, if you aren't a cyclist and you want to add cycling, we'll try to take that down to brass tacks. We'll catch you next time.